But amidst all of that, there was this undeniable sense of gratitude that, holy shit, I'm alive. I'm not supposed to be here. I wasn't expected to be. I've, I knew I died twice in hospital and I'd been on life support and in a coma and they'd called my family. The guy had this stroke and just said, yeah, they said we don't expect Lisa to live through the night. Please get down here as soon as you can. So mum, dad, my brother and sister jumped on a plane and, and came to came to Melbourne and each day they didn't know if I was going to be alive the next morning. At one stage they talked about turning off my life support. So I, I sort of knew about these these things and even though I was I was just falling to pieces on some days, at other times I just knew how incredibly lucky and fortunate I was to to even be here eating the shitty hospital food. I'm like, hey it's I'm getting fed. <laughs> what do I get to complain about? gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the Nicello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Lisa Cox was living a life just like so many others her age. She was 24 and climbing the corporate ladder in the advertising world. She travelled the globe, moved to Melbourne when she unexpectedly suffered a brain hemorrhage. She spent the next three weeks in a coma, two months on life support, and over the course of a year in hospital had pneumonia, two heart attacks, seizures, open heart surgery, had to have one leg and all of her toes and nine fingertips amputated, a total hip replacement, and died twice. Her family was told early on they'd likely have to turn off her life support. But something incredible happened. Lisa's brain started to recharge, regenerating every cell in her body. The mammoth toll this all took on her body has impacted her speech and memory, left her 25% blind and epileptic with osteoarthritis in almost every joint. She's had to relearn to do everything, feed herself, dress herself, speak, write, all of the things we take for granted every day. But despite all of this, Lisa refused to let life defeat her. Instead, she saw it as an opportunity to start over, to rebuild her life from the ground up, a chance to use her story to inspire others to dig deep when life throws you lemons, to live life on your own terms. She's now a public speaker, author, disability advocate, and all round one of the most inspiring humans I've ever met. Here's Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honour to be here with some incredible women that I've heard. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been, um, I was just saying off camera that, um, well, off mic, that um, it's your birthday next week and all I'm doing is interviewing Tauruses at the moment. So (laughs) I'm stoked about that because I'm one too. (laughs) Quietly, we're the best, but, you know, that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> obviously, that's obviously what it means. <laughs> now, Lisa, how is uh, this whole situation? How's isolation life? How is this pandemic treating you? Well, I know that it's really, really hard for a lot of people, but I'll be completely honest. It's, it's actually going okay for me. And um, I, I wrote a little bit about this. Um, I posted something yesterday on Instagram. 
for a, a large uh, sect of the population, it's, it's kind of life as normal for a lot of us. Um, I have a disability and I've been working from home for years and years. So that sort of environment is quite normal for me. And once I posted, I thought, oh, I'm going to get some backlash for this. And people are going to be cranky and go, no, don't, no, domestic violence rates are up and all of those sorts of things. It's horrible. The economy is turned to shit and it's all a really, really bad situation. There's been some, some terrible things happening. But um, I've got so many people just say, yep, me too. I agree. I've, I've been living in ISO essentially for X, X amount of time since XYZ happened. And um, I suppose the only voices we really hear about life in isolation is, is from the same, the same sorts of people. So I was, I was really surprised by that that response. Now, Lisa, with all of my interviews, I start them all in the same way and that's getting a feel of the guest's childhood. So can you talk to me about what your childhood was like? Sure. Well, I grew up, uh, I started life in northern Queensland and then moved to Brisbane for schooling and university and everything. And it was, it was great, generally speaking. Um, it was modest, middle class, run of the mill kind of mum, dad, two siblings, I'm the eldest. I have a, a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, and yeah, it was, it was great to be honest. I played a lot of sport through school and that was my, my escape when things got stressful or I got anxious or anything like that. I just hit the vulnerable courts and run around that and I got, got okay at it by the end. So yeah. And did you know what you, would, you wanted to do when you left school? Was it, did you want to do sport? No, well, I did and I didn't. So I, I knew that sport would be a, a very short-term thing. So when I left school at 17, I thought if I did um, pursue volleyball professionally, firstly, women in sport paid a lot less than they are today, even though they still are paid less today. Um, I actually wanted to be an occupational therapist. So when I was in year 10 and picked my subjects, I had to choose all the science subjects and, um, you know, when you go and you do your work experience and all those sorts of things, I had my heart set on being an occupational therapist. So I did my work experience at a hospital and it was only in the, the final semester of school someone gave me a project to do around advertising and being creative and coming up with an ad and I thought, this is awesome, can I do this job? And that was it. I, um, I discovered advertising and copywriting and went to uni, did my degrees and didn't look back. Yeah, you're a phenomenal writer as well. I've been reading everything you've put out. You're so good. So I can definitely see why you excelled in that. So that's what attracted you to advertising then, this kind of creative side to it? I think so. I, I used to joke with people that I had the best job in the world because I got to be creative and do what I loved which was writing, and get paid for it. So how awesome was that? And mm. the industry wasn't too bad in terms of putting on drinks and things as well. So that was just <laughs> a nice break of the industry. But, um, yeah, then unfortunately had to, had to stop that. But it was, it, was a, it was a great job. That was my next point because you were 24 years old, which when I think back to myself at 24, you feel like, you know, the options are endless. You know, it, your oh, yeah. career is just skyrocketing. Everything is, you're almost laying down the foundations of the rest of your life. That's how it feels. Yep. And so, but when you were 24, your life changed forever. 
Can you tell me what happened? I'll set the scene really quickly. I was 24 and like you said, had plans to do this and that and whatever with my career. I'd won awards, been promoted, had had my heart set on working overseas and then uh, was at Melbourne Airport early one morning where I was looking at the time and I had a brain hemorrhage, like a stroke. So I don't remember any of this because that tends to be what happens after after a stroke or a brain injury. So they took me to hospital. I was in a coma for three weeks on life support for two months. I've been in hospital for over a year, the first time. Um, obviously work, everything stopped during that time. Um, and during that first year in hospital, that's the fun bit. So my left leg, all of my right toes and nine of my fingertips were amputated. I uh, had a total hip replacement the second time in hospital, um, at 27, having a hip replacement was just a joy. And then, um, yeah, a bit of heart surgery and then came back a third time, had some more heart surgery. So now I'm, yeah, I'm still, I loved life before and I love life now. It's just, it's very, very different. So even though you can see all of my physical disabilities, I'm in a wheelchair full time. Um, I have a prosthesis missing Missing fingers. I know your listeners can't see if I have missing fingertips and scars everywhere. Um, over 25% blind and epilepsy and a permanent brain injury. So my speech is sometimes affected and I sound like I've had a bottle of wine. But um, they're all of the things you can't see and they're far more challenging on my life and on my day than the, the wheelchair or the things you can see. Wow. When you run through that, you and I know you do professional speaking, so you must be used to telling that story and tell and, and re- recounting what happened. But, you know, that aside, that aside from just, just recounting what happened, can you take me to how it felt those months? What, what was happening for you? Uh, it was uh, a mixture of there was gratitude in there, but also immense just why the fuck did this happen to me? What What is going on? So when, when you acquire a brain injury, everything is just all over the shop and I was on a lot of medication. Um, apologies to any listeners who are eating, but my, my hands and feet were quite literally rotting away. All of my extremities had turned black and... Um, so I was on a, a ton of medication for pain. So I was space there all the time, um, days. My family sort of drip-fed me little bits of information because if they'd told me on day one, um, this is what happened to you, I would have just forgotten forgotten it. So, for example, they did tell me one day that my leg was going to be amputated and apparently I just cried my eyes out, woke up the next morning, had completely forgotten about it didn't remember that they they told me that so they decided that let's not tell Lisa every day and make it grand whole day and we'll just be shit every day and so it was only a few months later um they told me again and of course I just fell apart thought the world was just gonna fall apart around me but um the next morning I woke up and I remembered it and um yeah then got a shitload of therapy because <laughs> that's what you have to do <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you sort of just, I just faced each challenge as it came along. So a few weeks later, they told me, we're going to take all your toes off too. And then I, I fell apart again. And then 
it was sort of every every few weeks or a few days there was there was a new a new challenge or a new bridge to cross and um you just sort of get over that and there'd be there'd be something else. So but amidst all of that there was this undeniable sense of gratitude that holy shit, I'm alive. I'm not supposed to be here. I wasn't expected to be. I've you know, I knew I died twice in hospital and I'd been on life support and in a coma and they'd called my family the day I had this stroke and just said they were living in Brisbane, I was in Melbourne, um, about three hours plane distance. Oh, sorry, hours, three hours travelling a plane for anyone not yeah. in Australia. But, um, yeah, they said we don't expect Lisa to live through the night. Please get down here as soon as you can. So mum, dad, my brother and sister jumped on a plane and, and came to came to Melbourne and each... Uh, each day they didn't know if I was going to be alive the next morning. And at one stage they talked about turning off my life support. So I, I sort of knew about these these things. And even though I was I was just falling to pieces on some days, at other times I just knew how incredibly lucky and fortunate I was to to even be here eating this shitty hospital food. I'm like, hey, it's, I'm getting fed. <laughs> what do I get to complain about? Wow, what an incredible, incredible outlook. What was the, it was an infection, is that right, that you just have no idea how you even got it or why? Streptococcus A was the name of it, and I obviously don't have much of a medical background, but my understanding from what specialists have, have told me is that it's it's a sort of thing you can maybe just pick up at the shops or wow. pick up randomly, and my body got the infection, and if it was in a any other person, they would have fought it. Their body would have fought that infection, but um, my body may have been a bit run down or stressed or, or something like that, which is why it just it didn't fight it and it just had a big party and caused the brain hemorrhage. Have you spoken much to your family about what it was like for them during this time? I have, I have, and... Um, I know Mum and I spoke. We always have spoken a lot about everything. We still do, and yeah, it's. I I know they they say I shouldn't I shouldn't feel bad about it, but I will forever feel mm. absolutely horrible about putting my family through that. It's just I I can't even comprehend. I mean, I've, things happen to me, and I and before before all this happened, and even now, things happen to me, and I'm fine. I can I can deal with it. But something happens to my husband or my mom or my sister or someone in my family, and I'm a wreck. I, I really don't handle it well when it's happening to other people. So I can, I can only imagine how shit that time would have been for them. So you spent around a year in hospital all up. Is that right? That's, that's correct. It was it was just over a year before they let me out the first time, and then I had to keep coming back for different operations. So. Uh, there were certain wounds that weren't healing. I had to come back for that. And then my hip replacement came back for that. And then uh, my heart surgery several years later in 2012, 13, I think, came back for that. So, um, yeah, that was New Year's, New Year's in 2012. <laughs> you are so amazing. You are phenomenal. You Just the way you speak about this is just absolutely blown me away your optimism and your enthusiasm and it outlook is, it is what it is and no amount of 
feeling shitty about it. And don't get me wrong, there have been plenty of bad days. I'm not all roses and sunshine. I'm not going to try and pull that one over anyone's eyes. But um, I think... I think my time playing sport taught me a lot about that, that when things go wrong, when, when you fail, whether it's on the sporting field or it's something else, you can't just sit there in the middle of a volleyball court and have a tantrum and go, why me? And stress about it for, for hours. And you've just got to get up and move on. And that had happened so many times through my life, playing, whether it was rock climbing or something like that. You're, you'd fall or you'd make a mistake and you can't just sit there 20 metres up a rock face and go, well, with me, mm. you get on with it because it is what it is. And I sort of applied similar principles to, to what had happened, I guess. You, um, you mentioned earlier and you said it then as well that you would fall into these states of victimhood, which is obviously so understandable. What were kind of some of the things that you used to use to try and get yourself out of that state? Um, I would flash back to, because I'd never been in a similar situation before, so I couldn't couldn't really go, well, the other time that I had my leg amputated and I came out of the coma, what did I do? But I think back to other situations where I've been in a really difficult patch and look at my coping coping strategies and coping mechanisms back then and try and apply them to this situation that I was in. Um, I was also incredibly fortunate to have family around me. So I know that's that's not possible for everyone, but they they definitely helped me um, see some sunshine in some really dark, dark places, dark times. What does being bound to a hospital bed and in a hospital for that length of time teach you? So much. <laughs> I was only joking to somebody this morning because I, it was my um, exercise physiologist and I saw him for a, a session because the gym is closed and um, he's always teasing me because I have no patience. I want results now. <laughs> and I said, you'd think that all of this would have taught me a lot of patience. But in some, in some ways it has, um, but in other ways it obviously hasn't. Um, I think... There are there are certain things that, like gratitude, for example, I didn't have an epiphany that, oh, gratitude's great. It, it didn't um, come to me like a light bulb moment, but it just reaffirmed to me a lot of things that I already knew. So rather than learning, I think it was more of a, a reaffirming of, of certain things like gratitude and being um, appreciative of the small things and valuing experiences over stuff and not needing a lot of crap to be happy. Um, I wrote about this again on Instagram for that first year in hospital. I lived out of a, a shoebox, like a Tupperware container about the size of a shoebox. And in that were all of my worldly possessions, <laughs> just a pair of reading glasses, a pen, really not much, just little odds and ends, um, a photo of my family. But that, that was all I had for a year. And, you know, granted I had no children or work or anything like that and I wore the same hospital pyjamas every day. But it reaffirmed to me what I already knew from years of backpacking and camping and other things that you didn't need a heap of stuff to be happy because what brought me so much happiness and joy throughout that first year was, was seeing my family walk into the room, was having my friends visit, was 
opening a letter from from a friend on the other side of the world who who'd taken the time to to hand write a letter to me. So that that was the sort of stuff that um that brought me so much joy and happiness. Not the, the Louis Vuittons in my my wardrobe. Not that I have any. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That is so true. It's not the stuff. It's the things that are, are actual value and actually matter in life, isn't it? I, I but given the current situation with COVID, et cetera, and I don't know when this is going to go to air, but everyone's in lockdown and I think so many people are starting to starting to realise that now. I mean, I've been banging on about it for years in Instagram, on Instagram and speaking and other things, but nobody really had that point of reference for so long. And I mean, other people have spoken about it as well, of course, but only now is everyone starting to kind of understand that, you know what? Isolation really sucks and my really expensive wardrobe full of designing clothes isn't actually helping me right now. Means nothing. And that really expensive car in my driveway, it's not vaccinating me and it's it's not getting me out of ISO any faster. What? What's the point? Yeah, I've always said, what's the point of having a um, beautiful car when you can't even drive it? That's how it feels right now. It just feels so pointless. <laughs> you said before that you, and I've seen, I saw you write about it as well, that you died in hospital twice mm-hmm. and were resuscitated. Yep. There's such a fascination for people to want to know what that is like. You, what, what do, you, do you have any memory of that? Uh, I I wrote a, a piece about this that that basically said nothing happens, and I hate to. <laughs> I was wanting something really. You saw this, and you saw. <laughs> Sorry, there were no men with white cloaks and cherubs and little people with violins or any of that shit. Um, nothing happens, and the the point to the the piece that I had written about it was that make the most of your time now on earth because it's not like, and I, I do apologise, I know people have faith and this goes against that, but you don't go to fields of daisies and have all your dreams come true and get to drive that Ferrari that you've always wanted to drive or whatever the case may be. Nothing happens, so bloody do something with your life now. What in, what, how incredibly profound is that by itself then? You know, I guess people would be expecting you to say, as you said, that there's cherubs and angels playing violins, but how it's so much more profound saying, well, nothing happens. So make the best of what you've got right now. Yeah, I love that. Can you talk us through what it was like to relearn all of the basic things that you, I, I assume, and many of us take for granted, like, feeding ourselves and going to the toilet. Sure. I had definitely taken all of those things for granted myself um, previously. So just to to set the scene after the coma, after I came out of the coma, it was a couple of months before I was actually, I was conscious, but I wasn't aware I was conscious. So people would speak to me and I was awake and had all of the machines taken off me. But it was only a couple of months later that I retained memories and respond and have conversations and things. And that's when I became aware, really aware of my limitations. So I was lying flat and could sort of lift my arms, but I'd, I looked down at both my legs and they were just dead weights and nothing would move. I'd sort of blink and move my head a little bit. And that was, that was all the movement I could do. So it was a case of little bit by little bit 
um, building up to to learn all of the basics again, feeding myself, dressing myself, and all the things we we do take for take for granted. And it was it was frustrating and infuriating at times because I'm like I'm a I'm an educated 24 year old female, fiercely independent. Why can't I dress myself and be myself? I felt like a toddler sometimes, mm. but that's that's the way it was at the time. How important is it for you to be retelling what you've gone through and be, you know, talking about what you've what the skills that you had to relearn and um, everything you've experienced without inviting the pity party that's usually associated with such a traumatic life event. And I've heard, I've seen you write that you don't want to be a victim. You don't want to be. (laughs) Definitely not. There's a really fine line and I, I hope I get it right. I probably don't all the time, but a really fine line between telling a story and, it making making it sound like a pity party, but at the same time, I know that I've learned so much over the years by hearing other people's stories, and I've been so grateful that other people have taken the time to share their stories. That um, I I wanted to share mine because there's there's learning for everyone in hearing from from other people who've been through maybe not the same challenge, but different variations of that. You've written two books and you speak extensively about your journey. Why is it important for you to be turning these hardships and this adversity into an opportunity to help and inspire other people? Firstly, I love having the opportunity to pay it forward in a way because so many amazing people have been kind enough to share their stories with me um, and I've taken learnings from that to help myself deal with things. Um, but aside aside from that, the, the health um, side of it, I suppose, and there's also something else I'm doing these days which is challenging the preconceptions people have and the stereotypes around disability. So I'm very fortunate that I've been able to combine my previous um, background in media and communications and writing with my um, lived experience in disability so I'm, I'm doing a bit of advocacy work these days, trying to improve the representation of disability in mainstream popular culture because there's this preconception I've, I've only really come to understand in the last 15 years that we only ever see disability portrayed in two ways, um, as a, a really inspiring Paralympian, and they're great people, by the way, don't get me wrong, and if you're not that, you're a, a really sad and sorry person and cue the sad music because if you're watching a lot of shows the minute someone who has a disability comes on comes on screen the sad music starts every time so it's it's little little cues like that but and I wanted to break down a few of those stereotypes and was in a position to do that so I just started turning up things where you wouldn't expect to see a wheelchair and on a catwalk for example and just things that made um, made people think about what was possible for people with disability. What an incredible way to turn what you've gone through into something so positive and something that would be helping so many people who would have experienced something similar to you. Do you get much feedback from people thanking you for the kind of things that you're doing and the way that you're advocating? I, 
I do. I get a lot of feedback from people in the disability community who thank me for showing showing another side of disability, I suppose. There's some some great people out there doing doing great um, advocacy work, but in in my experience, there was another way to do it. It wasn't a case of ramming the message down people's throats and screaming at them about how they're all horrible for doing and saying things a certain way. But I believe in just, just showing through my actions um, rather than, than getting angry about it and having a big whinge on Twitter. So yeah. <laughs> that's my version anyway. I saw you write something, I read something you wrote too, which was really, it made me think, is that you've experienced, you've been in the media your entire working life and the pre what happened to you compared to post you realize that people with a disability just weren't in the media so you saw what it was like beforehand and you've seen what it's like now and it's just that it's just not there it's not even that it's being ignored it's just that it's not even considered It's, it's just not there and so I returned to work in an advertising agency for a little while after after hospital and all of my acquiring my disabilities and I suppose I was looking at things through a different lens by then. It to be honest hadn't hadn't really crossed my mind um, previously because I hadn't hadn't been in the sector and I hadn't heard all the commentary around it. But um, yeah, just just realised that there wasn't wasn't anything there. So I started started doing a bit of research, speaking to a few people, looking at how how we could change that. And I suppose having been on the other side of the coin as well, having been a, um, a writer with, with no experience, we, as whether you're a journalist or a copywriter or something else, you don't go out of your way to be an asshole and leave people out. You just don't want to do or say the wrong thing. Mm. So it's just a matter of having that conversation about, hey, you know, if you're going to do it this way, try this instead and educating I suppose I'm, I'm working with a um, group at the moment called Media Diversity Australia and they do a fantastic job educating journalists around culturally diverse um, issues and disability as well but just starting that conversation because often and I've been there I know what it feels like there's that fear around shit what do I do what do I say I don't want to offend um, so it, it just makes it so much easier to break down those walls and break down those barriers with a bit of a, a bit of a conversation around it. I'd love to talk to you about your role with Media Diversity Australia. You are the Disability Affairs Officer. Why is this work important to you? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's really really important to me because there aren't a lot of people. I, don't, I won't say there are none, but there aren't a lot of people who have both a disability and a professional media experience. So. This has come after years of, of searching myself and asking around and um, stalking LinkedIn and <laughs> you know I mean I've done it. But there's some really great journalists out there who, who write about disability but don't have that lived experience. Mm. And there's some really great people out there who have disability and sometimes write but don't have that media behind the scenes, really strong media experience. So there are a few people out there who have both I suppose so it was um I suppose making that that voice a bit a bit more well known for for the entire community not not just myself 
I love that you, and you said earlier as well, that you are the example for what you want to see more of in the media and want to see on a broader scale, like walking a runway, you know, going down a runway, you're putting yourself in positions that will make people notice. Why is it important for the broader public to see a wide range of bodies, shapes, abilities in mainstream media? It helps to um, change social attitudes, I suppose. So at the moment, um, people people see me and say say really silly things and make, make a lot of assumptions um, about me and other disabled people and I see it all the time on social media, different different things that are said. And I try to brush that off as they probably meant well or they just didn't know. But um, it's only through increased visibility that, that those attitudes change and people go, oh, no, not, not everybody in a wheelchair is, is this way or mm-hmm. you know, thinks this way or does this thing because I just saw so-and-so doing whatever and um, I saw Dylan Alcott playing, playing tennis. So they're, <laughs> they're more, you know, they... I hate to use that word, but you know, pe- people with disabilities are just as capable as um, many people without disabilities, but we just go about things differently. You mentioned that people have said some really silly, insensitive things to you. What kinds of things have people said? Um, I'm, I'm often asked, what's wrong with me or, or what happens to you? And I, I mean... I don't mind telling a friend or if if someone is asking out of genuine curiosity um, and sort of asks, so so what happened? And I know they're genuinely curious and some activists will disagree with me and say, oh, you shouldn't shouldn't enjoy that. And I don't mind talking about it because I used to be that person without disabilities and I never asked anyone that, but I... You know, this was just genuinely curious because it's only through education and me going, oh, this happened, but it's okay. You know, you don't need to feel sorry for me and I'm not sad about it, that people learn and people understand. And so when they speak to the next person with disabilities, they'll know not to just automatically assume that there's something to be pitied or felt Mm. sorry for. Um, But, yeah, people might say, what what happened to you without... um, without introducing themselves or within yeah. five seconds of meeting to me, or what's wrong with you? That's probably my least favourite. Nothing's wrong with me. I just haven't had coffee yet, so get out of my way. Yeah, move out of the way. And you wouldn't say that to anybody else either. You would never walk up to no, someone and say I that. Never walk up to a man and say, so how's a prostate? What happened to that? <laughs> it's just never. People, people think that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly open book. I'll, I'll answer, answer most things and... Um, like any woman who's had a baby will tell you, you lose a lot of modesty <laughs> and we'll, we'll tend to talk about most things after after a while. But when it comes to just having that conversation with strangers who who don't bother to get to get to know me first or mm-hmm. obviously aren't really asking with, with any, any care, um, yeah, but other than that, I really don't mind asking. Like when a little kid comes up to me and goes, What's this? What's going on? I'm, I'm happy to talk to them because that's the only way they learn. They should they shouldn't be afraid of me or or anything like that. And I always take 
the responsibility per, uh, personally because I believe that however I respond, whether it's to tell them to F off or ignore them or just happily have a conversation with them, in so many ways that's going to reflect on how they talk to the next disabled person they meet. And the next disabled person they meet, they might think, oh, geez, disabled people are really cranky. They just tell me to F off yeah. if, I'm, if I'm not rude. And I don't, I don't want that to happen to anyone. Especially with children, if they're just taught from a young age that it's no big deal and there's just people with all different shapes and sizes and abilities, they won't even think about it. Yeah. And my, I've used the example before. I have some gorgeous nieces and nephews and they just see me as Auntie Lisa. They, mm. they go for wheels in my chair and love it when I take my leg off and they're just fascinated by the whole thing. And the first time they were learning about things and why have you got no fingertips? And um, they were really confused. But these days they could not care yeah. less that I'm so different and that I get around in a wheelchair and that my leg comes off and all these other things. They just don't give a rat's up, yeah. to be honest. But it's, it's walking into a wheeling into a um a, a boardroom and meeting the, the 50-year-old CEO who's just really taken aback and doesn't know how to speak to me and oh. doesn't know how to shake my hand or does all those sorts of things that you know my four-year-old nephew probably knows better. Yeah, has more social decency and social and, <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and what's the word? Like empathy uh, or just empathy, understanding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe a day will come in the future and keeping on what we're saying about what kids are like that, you know, you won't even, you people like you won't even be needing to champion broader diversity. It's just I going to happen. Absolutely love that. And I don't know if this is right, but it's just the theory that I'm going with right now that, Disability is maybe um, a decade or two behind other minorities. And I know that um, Mia Friedman did an interview, uh, uh, was an interview? Yeah, she did an interview one day, was talking about how her her children had seen um, the the gay footballers kissing. And they just shrugged no. their shoulders. Wouldn't even think anything. Did not care. And she said it's it's such a reflection of where that generation's at because when she was that age, or even even now, there are people who are just absolutely outraged. So I would I would love to see a time when disability is is just no big deal, but that is only going to come through consistent truthful representations. And I've spent so many years in media um, making my clients' brands and their messages visible that I thought, well, why not apply those same strategies to disability, which is probably a lot more important than a can of tin tuna. But um, so visibility for disability is essentially what I've been working at for, for a couple of years now, trying to get visual representations of disability outside of that um, sick in hospital or mm. pitiful state or something like that. Does it ever, and have you noticed examples in your line of work where maybe a brand or designer or whatever is more just ticking a diversity box and it becomes more tokenism? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And is that so frustrating? (laughs) Because it's just missing the point. It's incredibly frustrating and it misses the point and it's 
I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still undecided that is tokenism better than no diversity? Mm. It's, it's terrible that it has to be tokenistic, but if I'm not there in my wheelchair being a token, then there's nothing. So which, which is worse, I suppose. And they're both, they're both bad. And depending on the situation, it's, it's a bit of the, the better of both eagles, I think. But you're, you're absolutely right. There have been times where I've been, been rolled out as the, the token the token wheelchair. <laughs> and can you just feel it? Can you just feel that it's not the right oh, vibe? Sure. Mm. You can, you can, you can absolutely feel it. So again, it's, it's, it's frustrating. And I've been the, the token in different, different roles over the years um, in boardrooms and catwalks and, and all sorts of things. And it's, yeah, it's disappointing. But again, it's only through being token several times and putting yourself out there several times and being criticised for being the token several times that people will come around and go, oh, that, that's actually not a bad idea. It's not as difficult as we thought it would be. Yeah. We might put some more on next time and let's just put more disabled people here, there or everywhere. Yeah. What is your advice for anyone out there who has been going through a rough time or perhaps may have experienced a major life event as well? What would your advice be to them? How long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot of time. (laughs) We're in isolation. It's fine. (laughs) I suppose I've spoken about this and I always make the point of saying, my challenges personally were more health-related, but on in so many circumstances, the same same ideas or principles can be transferred across different different areas. So maybe someone's having problems with a a partner or finances mm-hmm. or something like that. But mm-hmm. there are obvious examples where it wouldn't apply. But um, one would be surrounding herself with like-minded people, people who get it. Um, for me, that's involved surrounding myself with with people who understand not just my disability, but my advocacy work and my passion for that sort of work as a whole. Um, Not, when I say, you say, surround yourself with positive people, that can sometimes not be the best advice because I don't want to surround myself with a heap of fluffy, rose coloured glass wearing. people who churn out <laughs> quotes as well yeah totally um, yeah, you need people I, to be I, real I, with you too yeah I love good quotes the rest of times but yeah so, life, life's all not <laughs> but <laughs> I know what you mean you don't you don't want to yeah. feel like you're hanging out with a quote book <laughs> oh no exactly <laughs> and there's there's probably that one there's I could look at it from a um an exercise nutrition point of view because no matter how much resilience and strength you have, if you're not sleeping and eating and everything the right way and whatever's right for your own body, then that may not be working so well. So reaching out for help if you need it. Um, there's a, unfortunately a stigma around reaching out for help if you need it, whether it's for mental health or something else. And no, no way. If, if you need help, there's absolutely no shame in getting the help you need I can um speak from experience with that because I was uh, this is well after hospital 
but my anxiety was definitely not under control. I was sleeping and eating and everything, doing everything the Instagram wellness warriors would tell me to do. <laughs> Nothing was working um, until I saw several specialists who helped me immensely. Um, so that would that would be another one because, yeah, be careful where you get your advice, especially in these days of social media because... Mm. Uh, Dr. Google and Wellness Warriors on Instagram can can be good for some things, but turmeric and yeah, won't fix everything. Yeah, exactly. You need that. You need proper support and and the te- a testament to good therapy as well. Yes. What are the ways that life has changed for you aside from the obvious that people may not be aware of? Well, I think everyone's aware of my incredible hustle because I, I talk around my bit on Instagram. You do. Time. I love your post. Your post is so beautiful. <laughs> and I'll be, of course, putting your Instagram in the show notes because I think everyone should follow you. <laughs> do you? <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's obviously changed. And things have things have simple, some things have stayed exactly the same. So a lot of my morals and values have still have still said the same, even though physically I'm a completely different person. I still care about the same sorts of things. Don't like coriander. <laughs> uh, <laughs> random random stuff like that. Um, what people don't know, if if they, I mean I talk about it all the time on Instagram, so they would know if they're they're looking at but just by looking at me, people don't know that my invisible disabilities are our biggest challenges. So they, they see wheelchair, they see scars and amputations and they go, oh, that's that's clearly what's wrong. But it's um, all of the things they can't see and don't see that um, are a lot more challenging. So I have chronic fatigue and during the day I'll, I'll get to midday and I just can't can't really do much of anything sometimes I'm fine though so um that's that's probably one I'm back living in Brisbane now which I'm loving because I get to get to spend more time with my family but um in my memory shit what was the question again (laughs) (laughs) what other ways life has changed for you aside from the obvious you might not be aware of (laughs) I don't drive anymore I still try to go to the gym several days a week again something that hasn't changed um aside from the obvious not a lot has changed if if I'm honest my my job my career I was in advertising agencies for years working working hard and loving it and now do all sorts of odd jobs and spend a lot of time working from home but in, in, it's changed so much, but in some ways it's, it just hasn't, to be honest. Yeah. And if there was one thing that you wanted people to get out of your experience and get out of your talks and your Instagram and your incredible writing, what would it be? Again, I could, <laughs> I could speak about this for hours, but you are so much stronger than you ever, ever, ever thought you were. Um, if you told me... 20 years ago that, you know, on your 40th birthday, you're going to be in a wheelchair with one leg of 25% blind and on paper it all looks really shit. But um, I just would not have believed you. But 
life today is pretty, I don't know if I can swear, but I already have. Go ahead. <laughs> My brain is pretty fucking awesome, even though on paper it's, it's terrible. It looks, it looks pretty bad. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here, to just put it simply. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. And I finish all of my interviews in the exact same way as well. And that's um, what would the Lisa now sitting in front of me with so many possibilities and endless potential tell the Lisa in her darkest moments? This too shall pass. And I'm not sure if that's a Bible quote because I'm not religious and I think it is. But... <laughs> um, I, I do some speaking with, with young people and I remember being that age and just thinking that this challenge, whether it's, it was zits or bullies or something else, that this was going to last forever and this is the way it's going to be forever. And it's not. And yeah, there are some things for me, like my leg, it's not going to grow back. No matter how much turmeric I have, it will not grow back. But so much, it, it passes. and that which it doesn't, like I said before, you're so much stronger than you think you are and you will get through it. I love that. What an awesome note to finish on. Thank you so much, Lisa. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. You did a brilliant, brilliant job and you're just so inspiring to listen to. And as I've said so many times when I've gushed over you in this interview, that your (laughs) outlook is just phenomenal and you were, you know, listening to you talk and what you've overcome is just such an inspiration to so many of us out there. So I want to thank you for being so candid and honest with us. Okay. Thank you very much. And thanks again for, for asking me to be a part of it. It was really great. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks so much. You too, Elizabeth. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. If you'd like to follow Lisa on Instagram, and I recommend you do, you can do so at lisacox.co. As always, you can find me at Elizabeth O'Neill. And I know I've been absent lately. And thank you so much, everyone, for your patience. Hope you're all doing well. I've missed putting content out every week, but it's just been a really necessary break for me. And one I hope to share once I've wrapped my head around these last six weeks or so. Sending you all love, especially if you're in Melbourne where I am, where everything is pretty scary right now. So chat soon. Bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.